morning. Please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 24 this morning. Last week, we learned about some anonymous or unnamed believers who led a large number of Gentiles to the Lord in Antioch. And how Barnabas and Paul began teaching the new believers there. A famine was going on. So this new church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem with a love offering to provide some famine relief. Meanwhile, King Herod had traveled from his headquarters in Caesarea to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's read about it, starting in verse 1. It was about this time that Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would remove distractions from our minds and open our hearts to what you want to show us from your word this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1 says, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church. King Herod in this passage is Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. We actually know quite a bit about Herod Agrippa I. For example, he was a good friends with a man named Gaius, who would one day become Roman emperor. One day, Agrippa and Gaius were riding together in a chariot when Herod said, I wish the emperor would just die so you could take the throne. This, of course, could be seen as treason, so the chariot driver reported him. The story quickly went up the chain of command all the way to Emperor Tiberius himself, who had Agrippa arrested and imprisoned. Six months later, Tiberius died, and Gaius became emperor. He released his friend Agrippa from prison and made him king over Judea and Galilee. Now, you've probably never heard of Emperor Gaius before. We know him by his nickname. When he was little, his father, a prominent Roman general, took him along with his army to fight German tribes. His father dressed little Gaius in a little Roman soldier outfit. The soldiers nicknamed young Gaius Little Boots or Caligula. Gaius became Emperor Caligula, one of the most depraved emperors in Roman history. And he was good friends with Herod Agrippa in our story this morning. My point in all this is that the book of Acts is not just some ancient fiction or myth. It takes place in real life, verifiable history. Acts 2 says that Agrippa had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, this could be confusing because when Peter is later released from prison, he gives instructions in verse 17 to tell James. How can they tell James if James has been put to death with the sword? The answer is that the James who was killed in verse 2 was one of the three main disciples of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the only three who were with Jesus at his transfiguration. The James we find later in verse 17 is the half-brother of Jesus, was one of the leaders of the early church. Verse 3 says that when 
Herod saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now, this was sheer politics. Although Agrippa was king, he was not about to ignore the mood of the people, and he was not above killing someone if he could improve his polling numbers, so to speak. I used to tell my students that technology changes, but human hearts haven't changed. The New Testament is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Anyway, when Agrippa saw that the execution of James met with popular approval, he arrested Peter too. Let's start reading in verse 4. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. So in verse 4, we find that Peter was put into prison to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. In other words, 16 soldiers in all. In just a minute, we'll see in verses 6 and 7 that Peter was chained at the wrist between two soldiers with sentries at the door. So what we likely have here is four six-hour shifts of four soldiers on each shift. On each shift, two soldiers were chained to Peter and two were standing guard at the door. This was not normal security. Dungeons or ancient prisons were not easy to escape from and did not require this level of security. And it's not like Peter was an enemy general or someone who was a threat to the emperor. So why the high level of security? Isn't that a little far-fetched? Well, actually, no. Remember back in Acts 5, how the Sanhedrin had locked Peter and the apostles up in jail? And the next morning they were out preaching in the temple again? Peter or Herod Agrippa had undoubtedly been informed that Peter was somehow able to get out of prison before, and Agrippa was determined that this not happen again. But it did. Let's read verses 6 to 10. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood at the guard of the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. The angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. Suddenly, they had walked, when they had walked the length of the street, suddenly the angel left him. Now, for those who don't believe in God, then of course this seems far-fetched or even impossible. What boggles my mind is the huge number of people who say they believe in God who think this is impossible. I mean, if you believe in a God who could create the entire universe and keep it running, why should it seem so impossible that a messenger or angel of God could let someone out of prison? What happens next is one of the funniest stories in the Bible. Let's read verses 11 to 17. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, 
where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. So in verse 12, we find that Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Now, this man, John, who is called Mark, is likely the author of the Gospel of Mark. In Colossians 4.10, Paul tells us that he's the cousin of Barnabas. We'll find out in verse 25 that he accompanies Paul and Barnabas from Jerusalem back to Antioch. We will find out later that Mark becomes the cause of a significant rift between Paul and Barnabas. Anyway, in verses 13 to 15, Peter knocks on the door and a servant girl named Rhoda answers. The church meeting in that house had been praying for Peter's release, but Rhoda is so shocked and overjoyed she runs back to tell everyone, Peter is here, without even letting Peter in. And they're like, yeah, right, you must be seeing things. But when she kept on insisting, some apparently wondered if Peter had been killed and maybe Rhoda was seeing his angel or ghost. The irony is that they had been praying earnestly for Peter's release, but they don't believe it when their prayers are answered. After explaining what happened, verse 17 says that Peter then left for another place. From other sources, it appears that Peter traveled through what is now Turkey and then on to Rome. After Peter left, James, the half-brother of Jesus and author of the book of James, became head of the Jerusalem church. The next morning, when Herod heard the news that Peter had escaped, verse 19 says he cross-examined the guards, which probably means he tortured a confession out of them. Then he had them executed. When the Feast of Unleavened Bread was over, Herod Agrippa returned to his headquarters in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Starting at the end of verse 19, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a personal trusted servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not praise God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. Now, Tyre and Sidon were independent cities north of Caesarea, but since they were economically dependent on Herod and his province, they were anxious to smooth things over with him. So they sent representatives to Caesarea to meet with him, and they came to an event in which Herod was to publicly address the crowd. Verse 22, the people suddenly cried out, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Now this may be hard to believe since many of the residents of Caesarea were Jewish, 
It seems a little far-fetched even for Gentiles from Tyre and Sidon who wanted to patch things up with Agrippa. Verse 23 is even stranger. It says, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms and died. This is just another one of those stories that is just hard for modern people to believe. In this case, however, Josephus records his version of this event. Just as a reminder, Josephus was a non-Christian Jewish historian who wrote in the first century, probably about the time the book of Revelation was written. Let me read an edited version of what Josephus wrote about this event. I edited it because Joseph gets, Josephus gets long-winded and the translation is old and not always easy to follow. So Josephus wrote, Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city of Caesarea, and there a certain festival was being celebrated. At this festival, a great number were gathered together. On the second day, he put on a garment made of silver of a truly wonderful texture and came into the amphitheater early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the sun's rays, was so brilliantly radiant as to spread awe over those who looked intently on him. His flatterers cried out that he was a god. The king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery. But shortly thereafter, a severe pain arose in his belly, striking with the most violent intensity. Accordingly, when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being 54 years old, in the seventh year of his reign. Now, although the account by Josephus is more detailed than the one by Luke, the basic story is the same. In both accounts, the story takes place in Caesarea. Both accounts make Herod the focus of the story. In both accounts, Herod was giving a public address. Both accounts say the people proclaim him as a god. In both accounts, Herod accepts their worship. And in both accounts, Herod dies from some terrible illness. My point is that this is yet another case in which the book of Acts is supported by non-Christian history. I think Luke's main point is that Herod Agrippa, a Jew, should have known that God alone is worthy of worship. So you don't allow people to worship you as a God. Yet that is exactly what he did. And he was immediately judged by God for it. Now, by way of contrast, we saw in chapter 10, when the people in Cornelius's house fell at Peter's feet, he immediately told them to get up because, as Peter said, he was just human. Now, let me leave you with just three final observations on this passage. First, I think one of the main points in this passage was to show that political oppression or persecution, in this case by Herod Agrippa I, cannot stop the spread of God's word. In other words, the main point is summarized in verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Second, back in Acts 8.1, we found that even in the midst of great persecution that broke out in Jerusalem, the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Now, after the imprisonment of Peter and James and the execution of James, even Peter is forced into exile. In this passage, we see God's miraculous protection of Peter by releasing him from prison as the believers were praying. In fact, God even answered their prayer in spite of their lack of faith. They didn't believe it at first when Peter showed up at their front gate. 
when we pray, we need to believe in the God who can and does answer prayer. The difficulty for us, however, is that God answers prayer that is in accordance with his will, which means that sometimes the answer may be no. For example, I'm sure the believers had also been praying for Stephen and James, and yet both of them were killed. Being a Christian does not mean we will be saved from trials or persecution. But we can be assured, as Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that God ultimately works all things for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So what good does it do to pray if God will only answer prayers that are according to his will? I'm convinced that there's a lot of prayers that God would love to answer if we would just ask. Finally, I want to make a tangent observation regarding persecution. Verse 17 that Peter says that Peter left for another place. He left because his life was in danger. Earlier in Damascus and Jerusalem, Paul also fled when his life was in danger. It is not a sin to flee persecution. In fact, I would suggest that it is even biblical to oppose persecution when that's possible. Increasingly in America, we are finding that Christians are being threatened, fined, tried in courts or before civil rights commissions, losing jobs and losing businesses, simply because they are living out their Christian convictions regarding marriage or abortion or because their Christian views are not politically correct. Unfortunately, all too many Christians, usually those who have not yet been affected, respond with a big yawn, saying that Christians should expect persecution. Well, they're absolutely right. We should expect persecution. But that doesn't mean we should always just sit idly by and accept it. In fact, sometimes it may be appropriate to oppose persecution. For example, we find in Acts 17, that Paul charged the magistrates of Philippi with violating his rights as a Roman citizen and demanded that they personally escort him out of jail, which they did. In Acts 22, Paul uses his rights as a Roman citizen to avoid being flogged. Also in Acts 22, it was Paul's status as a Roman citizen that he asserted that got him transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea in protective custody. In Romans 25, Paul uses his right as a Roman citizen to appeal his case to Caesar. It is biblically permissible to assert our rights as citizens to oppose persecution. In fact, the prophet Isaiah commands readers to defend the oppressed and to loose the chains of injustice. And I find it amazing that some Christian social justice warriors will use these verses to defend people like thugs who attack police officers or those who have entered our country illegally. But don't stop to realize that defending the oppressed includes standing up for the rights of our brothers and sisters in Christ. As hard as it is to believe, more and more people in America are being oppressed because of their Christian faith. So what can you do about it? Well, first, just pray that we would continue to have religious freedom and that the Supreme Court would uphold our religious liberty. Second, support organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom. Most people have no idea how much of our religious freedom would be gone already, if not for the work of organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom. Third, support candidates who will defend religious liberty. Now, there may be some here who will get mad at me now, but I have to get political here because we're talking about our religious freedom. So, for example, 
Whether you personally like him or not, one candidate has done more to defend religious liberty both here and abroad than any president in my lifetime. By contrast, the other candidate has promised to make passage of the so-called Equality Act a priority. And I guarantee you that Equality Act would dramatically increase persecution against Christians. If you don't believe me, just talk to me about it after church. This is not just a partisan political issue. This is a Christian issue that every Christian should be deeply concerned about. Closer to home, if Republicans can gain the majority in the Senate leg state legislature, they will refuse to continue the governor's emergency powers and ensure that he will not be able to shut down churches again. These are freedom of religion issues. And finally, prepare yourselves mentally in case persecution comes. Determine ahead of time to be faithful to the Lord, regardless of the cost. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this upcoming election. We pray that we would be, continue to be able to enjoy our religious freedom and that the candidates would be elected who would slow and not accelerate the moral decline in this country. Father, regardless of the outcome, help us to be faithful to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.